Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let's get to it. Genesis 27, and where we are as we end this block in Genesis is really picking back up on a theme that we looked at in Genesis 25. Last week, Robert preached an excellent message on Genesis chapter 26. If you missed Robert's really a thorough analysis and very helpful articulation of what was going on in Genesis 26, you can find it on the internet or on CDs out at the information desk. And today we pick back up on the implications and the sort of response to what happened in Genesis 25, where God has, has spoken to Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah, this wife of Isaac, the son of Abraham, is now pregnant after years of infertility. And she has these two twins that are fighting in her womb. And God speaks to Rebekah as she is pregnant with these twins in Genesis 25. And he issues a sovereign decree. And he says to her that the younger will rule over the older, which is a complete reversal of the natural order. And God decrees that the the older child, the twin that comes out first, will serve the younger. So Jacob will, God has chosen Jacob to be his man, and Esau will serve him. And now we pick back up in Genesis 27 with these two twins now born and looking at their life and Remember how Jacob stole Israel's, or he stole, I'm sorry, Esau's birthright. He tricked Esau into selling his birthright over just a, a pot of stew. And now we're going to see this, this chosen but yet deceptive Jacob being a schemer again. So just a moment, I'll read 20, chapter 27, and I'm going to ans- ask and answer three questions at the end. These are three questions that have Uh, in large part, guided us through Genesis. So I'm going to put them up on the screen. This is going to be in our outline. We're going to just peel back these three questions as we work through this. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn about God's plan of redemption in Christ? Okay, those are the three questions we're going to look at as we work through this chapter and settle on in the end. Well, let me pray that prayer that we've been praying recently, that I've been praying, just that simple prayer. Pray with me. Bow your heads if you would. Lord, we pray. That the things that we would know not, that you would teach us. The things that we have not and truly need, we pray that you would grant us. And Lord, we pray what we are not, that you would make us by the power of your word and by your mighty Holy Spirit that is in this room now with us. We pray that you would do these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to read all of 27. All right, I know I'm, the deck is stacked against me. It's a holiday weekend, so you are either angry that you're not at the beach or you're super Christians, okay? I'm banking on the latter. We're also up against football, okay? You stayed up late last night. All right, I get that. And kids are in the room, which is wonderful, so parents don't be anxious if they squirm around. And kids... Pay attention to this chapter. This is one of the most intense scenes in the whole Bible. Lots for us to learn. So let's read in Genesis 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, 
his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. So let's pause there and just recognize that Isaac is really in direct contradiction with what God has revealed as his will for these two twins back in Genesis 25. God said that Jacob, not Esau, would be the one that was blessed and chosen. And Isaac, knowing that, is, is really pitting his will against the revealed will of God by saying, no, no, it's, it's Esau that I'm going to bless. And we also just see sort of this, I, I think we can all identify with this, this really pitiful place of just being governed by, by your desires. Isaac loved meat, and he loved his son's hunting ability, and he was hungry and he wanted food, and he's governed by the, the immediacy of his desires and by his growling stomach. Now, maybe none of us have directly disobeyed God because we were hungry, but how often have we just sort of just been governed by our desires? What a terrible place to be. And we see that happening with Isaac here. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Now, Rebekah, she's Isaac's wife, was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare, them, prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So mom is coming up with a deceptive scheme. She's a lot like her mother-in-law in this regard. Remember Sarah coming up with a scheme because of her barrenness, coming up with the scheme of Abraham lying with Hagar to have a child? So verse 11, But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So Rebekah has devised a deceitful scheme to trick her aging, blinding husband. Is it possible that she has made an idol out of her favorite... Listen, they are putting on a clinic on how not to parent, right? (laughs) That's just... I draw great encouragement by this because I often put on a clinic on how not not to parent. Isaac has his favorite rough-and-tumble hunter son that's got the little sticker and the shotgun rack in his, you know, old Chevy truck... Who he, t- he can't wait for bow season to start because him and Esau are going to go out and kill something, right? And Rebecca, I-, I-, I don't know what her and Jacob are, you know, doing not 
that type of stuff. And so she likes Jacob. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're, they're whatever. I don't want to say anything, but they're, they're, I'll get in trouble. But, but they, they are, they, she likes Jacob. And so she's making an idol out of her favorite child and is scheming to bring about Jacob's blessing. They're completely divorcing themselves from trusting in God's sovereign decree. I mean, why does she need to even do this? Jacob has already, from heaven, received this word that he will be the one. But yet, Rebecca, in her lack of faith and in her parental idolatry, goes about this deceitful scheme to trick her husband. Verse 14, So he went and took them, and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her oldest son, with, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Outright lie. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Meaning the game that he killed. He answered, listen to this. Because the Lord your God granted me success. Oh, what a... What a fretful sentence. I mean, just to to say, just to attribute God's blessing to endorse your scheming, to trick your aging father. I mean, there is... No innocent party in this. Verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near. See, he's not quite convinced here. Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. He said, still not convinced, he said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, and it seems like he's still not convinced. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. So it's like finally the trick, the scheme has worked, you know, and he's, he's testing him. I don't recognize his voice. Let me feel him. Now let me just draw him close. You know, it's like, it's like that, it's like that mob boss who's wondering if the guy's wearing a wire. Come on, let me give you a hug, you know, pat him down, you know. You guys didn't grow up on mob movies, mob movies like I did as an Italian kid. You're like, what are you talking about? 
sorry, delete that from the podcast. But he's, he's, he's suspicious. And now finally, he's convinced. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Listen to verse 29 now. And realize that in verse 29, these words that Isaac is going to utter, he thinks he is saying them to Esau. But he's actually saying them to Jacob. And that's important. Because back in chapter 25, God, in his revealed decree, has said that it is going to be Jacob the one that will be blessed, and not Esau. And so Isaac, knowing that, is in this moment, he's about to utter this blessing, is setting his will against the will of God. In direct defiance, he's setting his will against God's will. Friends, that is not a good place to be. Listen to Isaac's words, verse 29. Thinking that he's speaking to Esau, but actually speaking to Jacob. Let people serve you. And nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. Oh, friends. Do you notice the intensity of this scene? I mean, just can you feel it? God is using the scheming and sin of everybody involved to fulfill his sovereign word. Let's get into verse 30 now. Now that the tension just rises. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. It's like they, they just barely missed each other. Verse 31, He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Verse 32, his father said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn son, Isaac, or Esau. Now let's not act like Esau is the, is the let's not read into this, is that Esau is sort of the ignorant, innocent one. Remember in chapter 25? He was governed by his desires as well. And he scorned his birthright. And then at the end of chapter 26, last week that we went over, we see Esau disobeying and making life miserable for his parents by marrying these Hittite women that made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So let's not read into this that, that Isaac, or I'm sorry, Esau is some sort of victim here. He is just as guilty as everybody else. So who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Verse 33. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, And said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother, this is Isaac speaking now, 
your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken my blessing. Then he said, Have you, can you just hear the, the desperation in his, in his plea here? Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O my father. Now let's pause there and and let's just acknowledge that to our American ears where words mean nothing, where our airspace is just filled with chatter, it sort of strikes as this like, well, wait a minute. Clearly, Isaac, you were tricked. Just kind of shake the etch-a-sketch and, and say, oh, no, that didn't mean, my words didn't mean anything to Jacob, who I thought was Esau. So, yeah, yeah. So it's hard for us to say, well, yeah, yeah, why, why can't you just say, ah, oh, that didn't matter. I mean, friends, we don't understand the power of words and the power of this culture where God would give a blessing. And I am certain that in this moment, Isaac is probably flooded with conviction and guilt, realizing the scheme that has happened to him, and maybe even realizing that God has been behind it all, bringing about his sovereign purposes, even despite his rebellion and his wife and his sons scheming against him. And it's as if Isaac is realizing what his taken place that he cannot thwart God's sovereign purposes. But I think that what's even bound up in here, friends, is that when a father would bless his children in this culture, it meant more than just a whimsical word here or there like it does in our culture or like all speech does in our culture to a great degree. When a father would bless his children, the words were powerful and seen as coming from God and they were binding. And it was powerful and irrevocable. And Isaac realizes that and can do nothing to change it. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall, be, shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless... You shall break his yoke from your neck. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob. Rebekah's still on the prowl here. She is still working her angles. So she sent and called her Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. 
Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe myself because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? We won't take the time to read it, but at the beginning of Genesis 28, Jacob does flee, and he goes to his uncle's house, Laban. And then we see that Laban tricks him as well, and he becomes the, he starts to taste his own medicine, and we'll pick up in Genesis 28 in several, in several months. So, let's summarize this story before we answer these three questions. In chapter 25, these two twins are in the womb, and God, by His pure, sheer, sovereign grace, says that the younger shall rule the older, that He's setting His purposes and love and grace on Jacob. And then we looked at how that became a great encouragement to us, that if that becomes a picture of God's way that he works salvation, not because of anything good that we have done, but because of his purpose of grace, he sets his saving love on us. And if that is the case, then we can be sure that God will bring us safely home. But then we read in chapter 27 how God actually brings about the blessing of the one that he said will be blessed. He brings it about strikingly and surprisingly through the means of human disobedience and sin. And so we see God bringing about behind the scene, working, using direct rebellion, using scheming, using lying, using idolatry, using the urgency of human desires to bring about His sovereign plan. Friends, it's almost as if God has human history set up. Because He does. So then, what are we to take from this intense, striking, stunning scene? Well, question number one. What do we learn about God? I think the first thing we learn is that God is sovereign. Not only is He sovereign over sin, He actually uses it to accomplish His purpose. Friends, when we read chapter 27, we should stand in awe that nothing will thwart God's purpose. Nothing. No demon in hell. No evil empire. No terrorist in the Middle East. No market crash. No sin that I have committed. No thing that happens to me. No storm. No hurricane. Nothing can thwart. Not even at times my direct disobedience to God. Nothing can thwart His purpose for the world and for me. Listen to his words to rebellious Israel in the Old Testament later on through the prophet Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 46, starting in verse 8, and he's speaking, he's chastising, he's rebuking Israel in their sin as a nation. And he's saying to them, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Friends, that is a a wonderful little picture into the way God works his sovereign purposes despite our sin and rebellion in a broken world. God is saying to Israel and he's saying to us and he's saying it to us through this chapter and through Isaiah 46 that when he plans it, he will purpose it. We even get that from a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, as he tries to directly disobey God. We see another instance of this great truth being spoken in the scriptures in Daniel chapter 4. Listen to this Listen to this confession of this previously unbelieving king, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who understands this, that God is sovereign, even over his own disobedience against God and will accomplish his purpose. So listen to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 34 of Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forevermore. Listen, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So let's pause there, and let's take that truth in, and let's contrast it with the modern American notion of this sort of grandpa, Santa Claus-like God, who's up there to just give us a hug and make us feel better about a bad Tuesday. And let's be humbled. And let's be humbled that God in a way that at times is often mysterious and not seen to us, is sovereign and is in complete control over human history. The plates of the universe are not spinning out of control. He's not dropping any plates in the kitchen. He is arranging things in his sovereign often mysterious and unseen purpose and using even the means of human rebellion to bring about his sovereign plan. Friends, that is incredibly, incredibly encouraging. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Let's talk about it again. That means that we can take the thing that we are most fearful about or the future that we are most anxious about and pit that up against this mountainous biblical promise and say that God will accomplish his purpose to despite whatever we're facing. Now, let's also say some other things. We are not saying that God is responsible for sin or that he approves of it or that the end justifies, that the means justify the end or that we are not responsible for our sin. But friends, realize that the Bible is never nervous or scared to hold seemingly opposite truths and tension like we are often. And it's at times like this that we need to stop trying to explain and categorize God and simply worship Him. God is in control of all things and even uses human sin to work His sovereign purposes. Amen. Question number two. 
then what do we learn about ourselves from this chapter? Well, I think one thing we clearly learn is that rebellion, direct defiance of God, has terrible consequences. Jacob doesn't come out good. He has to flee to his uncle Laban's household, finds a wife there, would eventually be tricked by his uncle Laban in the finding of his wife. Goes pretty poorly for Jacob. It's, it's, it's a pretty rough 14 years for him. Then eventually Jacob will be tricked by his own sons and lied to by his own sons at the end of the book of Genesis that we'll get to eventually. Rebecca, the scheming mother who made an idol out of her son, she would never see her beloved son again because of the scheme that she concocted. Esau, we see this terrible misery that he had to endure. And we see, of course, Isaac, again, this broken-hearted father, realizing that he had been duped as he was governed by his desires. Friend, sin always lies. It never delivers. And by the way, that's why we need, I mean, who can see those consequences? Who can see these things clearly by themselves? Friend, that's why we need each other. That's why we need community. That's why we need to be in a, in a healthy local church where the word of God and the gospel is central. That's why you need each other, why we need one another, friends. Who can see and have perspective on their lives clearly alone? None of us. None of us. And so, so if, you're, if you're kind of on the edges of this church or some other church, maybe you're from out of town and visiting and you're just kind of here, friends, you cannot do life on the edges You've got to have people in your life who know you, who have authority to call you out and say that you are walking dangerously close to some terrible decision or some scheme or you're making an idol out of this. Is there anybody in your life who has that authority to help you avoid the blind spots? God God has wired us for community. Another thing we learn about ourselves is that God's sovereign providence over human history and over even the very details of our lives does not mean that we are not responsible. We cannot say that life and obedience does not matter. We can't say, friends, like I sometimes hear people say when they discover the great truths of God's sovereignty in the Scripture, they falsely take them to mean and apply to their life. Well, you know, say la vie. If human history is set, if tomorrow is certain, then what does it matter? Friends, the Bible says, if, if you think that way, or if you're tempted to think that way, go read Romans 6, where the Apostle Paul makes an argument that grace hasn't been given to us so that sin may abound. In fact, he says, he goes on to make an argument there, that if you truly understand God's sovereign grace and power over your life and all things, you would realize that you are now alive to him and dead to sin, and understanding God's complete sovereign grace in your life actually then becomes a platform for you to consider yourself dead to disobedience and alive to God. Paul takes it the other way, where we sinfully want to say, oh, well, then what does it matter? I'm just going to throw up my hands and, you know... Uh, Whatever happens, happens. No, Paul takes it another way and he says, because God is sure and certain and steadfast and because he's made you alive, that now becomes the fuel for your obedience. So reckon yourself dead to sin and disobedience and alive to God. And then finally, what do we learn about God's plan of redemption in Christ? 
I think it just leaps off the page at Genesis 27. It points towards a far more intense and far more heinous sin. The sin of God the Son, Jesus, the perfect man in the flesh, laying down his life, being crucified by his creation. We see that God used the greatest sin of all, not the lying of a mother or the idolatry or, or, or desires of a dad or the trickster nature of a son. God uses the greatest sin of all, the crucifying of the perfect Son of God to be the means by which He defeats sin. Listen to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In his sermon there, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen to this, delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So let's go to Acts chapter 4 and, and, and soak and marinate in this amazing truth a little bit more. Acts 4 verse 27. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, friends, just, let's just take this in. God is using the most horrifying sin ever committed, the crucifying of the perfect Son of God as a tool in His hand to actually be the means by which He would defeat sin. Does that mean that Herod was not responsible? No. doesn't mean that. Of course he was. Does that mean that Pontius Pilate was not responsible? No, he was. Does that mean that Israel was not responsible. No, they were. Does that mean that the Gentiles were not responsible? No, they were. Does that mean that you and I are not responsible? No, we are. But it also means that God is not bound. It's not like Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader at the end of Sky, Star Wars 48 or whatever episode it is. Like, you know, this dualism here where, where, where maybe good is going to win if we say the right prayer, if we make the right decision. No, friends, God has a script of human history and of your life and is simultaneously working His sovereign plan, defeating death and evil and sin and even our rebellion and is somehow maintaining His holiness mysteriously, sovereignly, wielding the sword of sin, cutting you free from the very sin that clutches you. Using sin to defeat sin. Friends, take that in. Shut your mouth, bow your heads, and worship the sovereign God of the universe. Friends, this is the gospel. He kicks the sword 
out of the enemy's hand and uses it to defeat him. And he, in his holiness, is using sin, never responsible for it, but using it to work his plan so that he remains holy and just and is the justifier of those whom have faith in Jesus. Friends, do you see the scandal? I mean, come on. How would we do it if we were in charge of everything? We, we would do it, we would just plow in and just start punching people in the face, right? But God in his amazing, humble kindness and sovereign, beautiful plan is working human history together in the most unexpected, scandalous, and spectacularly beautiful way to bring about the defeat of sin by using sin to turn on itself. And all of our sin that we've ever committed, that we have done, are doing, and will do, for those of us that are trusting in Jesus, He uses that, lays it on Jesus' shoulders on the cross. And because Jesus is perfect and holy and righteous and the true and one and only God-man, He is holy and worthy to receive and to extinguish the punishment that should have been ours. He defeats it by his holiness and rises again in victory over it and now frees us from the cords of death and sin that entangle us. So a final few just thoughts and then we're done. What are some implications? Friends, no one, take this in now, no one is beyond God's grace. Come on. Oh, so you had a lust problem when you were 14 years old, or maybe you're struggling with something on the internet right now. Okay. I'm not minimizing that. But come on now. Is that, is that greater than this train wreck of a Jerry Springer episode that we see in Genesis 27? Come on, friends. Part of the reason that God allows these things to happen is to become an example for us to show us that God delights in saving idolatrous moms and dads who play favorites and sons that are governed by their own idolatrous desire and who scheme and lie. No one is beyond God's grace. So enough of our self-absorbed holding on to the things that we think disqualify us. Enough of that. Take in God's extravagant, rich grace that delights in saving train wrecks like Jacob and us. Notice also just another implication that the sin that's committed against us cannot thwart God's purposes. So what's the worst thing that's happened to you? Or the worst thing that you fear? Friends, it cannot thwart God's purposes. And God uses the consequences of our sin and our brokenness to smash our idolatry and to make our life a display of Him in ways that we cannot see from the present moment. I just think of the ways that we're so vulnerable to, to just shrinking down God 
and magnifying the situation. You know, we just live in this world of Facebook and idolatry in a world of just our imaginations where we think that, oh, because I didn't make this decision or go here or marry this person or get this job or whatever, this promotion, my life is ruined. And then I watch, I look at all these wonderful pictures of everybody on Facebook just presenting their, you know, my life's amazing and so am I, is basically the kind of the tone, right? I'm better than you. You know, the sort of the, the underlying thing, you know? Isn't that just, that just reveals the selfishness of our hearts? But what it does is it builds up in us this, this idea that all there is is these 80 or 90 years, and we've made some bad decisions, and so we can't post on Facebook pictures of our beautiful little children winning their awards or my awesome little vacation, right? Don't you notice how you just notice all the pictures of somebody in some beautiful vacation spot while you're sitting in your nasty little living room that's never been cleaned, and you got like a pizza box sitting next to you, and you know. And so we're just tempted to think, because I have not optimized my life, or because I didn't have the opportunity that that person did, and my life's not really working out. Friends, Genesis 27 is like a club to that idol of our hearts, to smash it. No, friends, when we buy into that, we falsely assume that life is just these 80 or 90 years. But no, friends, God is arranging human history and our lives to do something more than just give us comfort and something to post on Facebook for these 80 or 90 years. God is arranging human history and our lives to display something far more satisfying, far more eternal, and that is the display of His glory in saving a people for Himself, for His glory, and their eternal, ever-increasing joy, friends. And maybe God in His kindness, friends, listen to this, this is mind-blowing. Maybe God in His kindness is sending you trouble. Maybe He's sending you struggle to pry your hands from this idolatrous 80 years so that you will finally let go of that false image and long for Him. Have you considered that? Maybe that person that you're so jealous of, God has given them up to the desires of their idolatrous life that terminate on these 80 years, and he's causing you to struggle so that you will get to a place when you will finally let go and grab onto him. Because life is not these 80 or 90 years. And there's coming a day when the veil will be pulled, the windshield will have all the mud wiped off of it, and as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we shall see clearly, and we will be able to see that God in His sovereign, beautiful, fatherly kindness has been working all things together for our good and His glory, and we will step into not the afterlife, but the beginning of life, where we will live in ever increasing satisfaction and joy. And that beautiful line at the end of Narnia, everything that is sad will become untrue. 
Oh, friends, oh, do you see that? Do you see that sovereign good purpose of God? Psalm 138, verse 8 says this. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Dear friend, if you walked into this room an unbeliever, not believing in God and his purposes, I encourage you to look up and to see the beautiful sovereign hand of God who is working all things together for his glory and your joy if you will turn away from trusting in your own wisdom and look to the greatest evil ever, the crucifying of his son on the cross and his resurrection and victory over it and trust in that and not yourself. I encourage you to do that even now, dear friend. If you came into this room a Christian, you've been a believing Christian for many years, let this truth put steel in your spine and let it do for you what one of my heroes, J.I. Packer, said. Let it, let it make you realize that God sends us both joy and sorrow to detach our hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to himself. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we consider and end our time here in Genesis for a while, we are in awe of your work in human history. Lord, we're humbled and at times mystified how you work all things together. but we trust that you do in the grand scope of human history and in our very lives. Lord, would we see these beautiful truths and would it produce in us a longing with the beauty of your nature and your power and with the beauty of eternity, so melt our hearts and smash our idols that we would long for you, that we would long to fall into the arms of sovereign grace. And would it put steel in our spine as we face a broken world, as we face even our remaining contradictory desires and bring glory to your name. And Lord, would you be so kind for my friends that are in this room who walked in not trusting in you, not trusting in Jesus' work on the cross. Would you be so kind as to cause them to look up and see Jesus? That moment when you used sin to crush sin once and for all. And that their only hope is in trusting in what you have done in Christ, not in their ability to figure out and dodge the bullets of a broken world.
Would you do that? Would you give them eyes to see, a heart to believe? And look to Jesus. Fall in love with him. Follow him. I pray that you do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's all stand.